It felt like pretending. It felt like I was really invisible. It felt frustrating that when people related to me, they were relating to what I considered to be a false image of myself. When she was born, Susan Stryker's parents thought they were welcoming a baby boy into the world, but she knew they were wrong by the time she was five years old. It took decades to let them know who she really was, however. Being trans raised a lot of questions for Susan. Practical questions, of course, but also theological, philosophical, and historical questions. And thanks to decades of research, Susan Stryker is one of the foremost specialists on transgender history in the United States. In this episode of Fireside with Blair Hodges, Susan Stryker joins us to talk about her personal experiences and how they intersect with the story she tells in her path-breaking book, Transgender History. Susan Stryker, thanks for joining me today at Fireside. It's a real treat to have you here. Hey, Blair. It's actually a great pleasure to be here. We're talking about your book, Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. And this is one of the most important histories of transgender history that's been written, especially about the United States. And I think that the book itself could include itself as part of that history, in, in, in my opinion. You're an important part of transgender history yourself in doing this kind of research. So I wondered if it bothers you at all that people want to dig into your own personal background background and experiences right away when they start talking to you about your research. No, that's totally fine. My my life is an open book, shall we say. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, yeah, people can just learn a lot and relate to people differently when you have a personal story to hang it on. So I've always been very open about talking about what my journey has been. Let's hear about it. Tell us about your experience as a, as a trans woman and uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I will say that I am one of those people who as far back as my memory goes into very early childhood. It's just like I thought of myself as um, a young person who was going to grow up to be like mommy. You know, like that was just how I felt mm. as a kid. And as a very young child, you know, say around like five years old, that's where I had the rude awakening of realizing that I lived in a culture that assigned people to, you know, boy-girl categories based on genitals and that, you know, genital difference was a biological thing. And so that was my little wake up call of going like, uh oh, you know, like, mm. I feel like this yeah. about myself. What does this mean that like, I got this body, not that body. So it's always been a question for me, you know, and can I ask how a five-year-old can even begin to wrap their head around that? Because as a cisgendered person, I never had that as a kid. So I, I just, it's hard well, to, to well, see you know, what that would be like. Well, it wasn't like I had a technical sense of like the way gender works. I just had a set of feelings, you know, it's just like I just felt myself to be the way that I was. Um, there's a story that I've told a number of times about saying, well, again, like I wasn't reading medical textbooks as a five-year-old, but I did listen <laughs> to the radio yeah. uh, and that there was a very popular song when I was uh, that age, the girl from Ipanema, you know, which is still a popular song. <laughs> yeah. But I just remember that song and projecting myself into it, you know, like I was the tall and tan and young and lovely one who, you know, hips swayed so you know gentle like a samba i can't remember exactly the, the words and it just like that was the me that i was going to grow up to be i remember feeling that very very clearly you know mm. that that i knew what i identified with you know i just little kids don't have a sense of you know the way biology works or 
the the way that social categorization of bodies works. It's like, you know, I didn't know anything about that, but I knew how I felt. I knew what I thought. I'm like that, not like this. You know, bodily difference doesn't mean so much when you're, you know, a kid. It's like you don't know what it means that you've got this body, not that body. But that recognition, you know, around five-ish years old for me where it's like I was like, oh, it's like people's bodies are different from one another. And it's like people who have like those bodies are girls and people who have those bodies are boys and I have this body. I don't feel like I'm a boy. Like, what's up with that? You know, it's like that, that was as much as I knew as a five-year-old, but I, you know, I, I knew that as a five-year-old and it just really drives home to me. You know, and this is a long time ago. I'm in, I'm in my sixties now. That was back in the 1960s, but it just drives home for me now, like all of the, you know, cultural hoopla and the culture wars about trans kids and like, you know, how can kids know that? And this is just a fad and, you know, think this is... They're being pressured into it. It's like a cool thing. Pressured into it. And, you know, I can just say, you know, straight up testifying, you know, just like I knew that about myself as a kid. So I believe it when kids that age or younger persistently express across gender identification however you want to explain it you know how does it happen why does it happen it's like you know that's that's fodder for conversation it's like people can talk you know we can have a reasonable conversation about it but the fact that it happens it's just like incontrovertible it's like it it happens so for you how did it start to spill out into everyday life and did you get pushback as a kid what were your experiences yeah well you know i i really hit it you know just like it was like a you know uh oh like what's going on with Mm. this should i say something about this it's like but you know like you get lots of um informal messages from the world tons that, of reinforcement that even gender to like, crossing behavior yeah. is something that Close, is colors. frowned upon right. or is like ridiculed or stigmatized i mean just like watching television it's just like guy in a dress yuck 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 mm-hmm. you know? bugs bunny uh, kind of stuff yeah right or you know knowing that you would get disciplined, you know, like, you know, like, honey, don't wear that, wear this, you know, um, you know, don't act that way, don't act this way. And so there's the, that constant low level norming of gender behaviors that you experience. And so like, should you say something to mommy and daddy? What if you like, feel like, but wait, why are you like wanting to be more boy-like? I don't really feel that way. You know, it's like, that's a hard conversation to have as a five or six or seven year old with your parents. Especially maybe then when, I mean, how, and you grew up, I didn't know this about you. I I found this out of when I reached out to you, that you grew up in an RLDS with an RLDS mother. Now I'm a Latter-day Saint, Mormon background. Mm -hmm. So this is a a different church that sort of broke off. These are sister churches, we could even call them. So did that play a part? Like, did your family have religious values that conflicted with this? They did, you know, and that was also part of it. It's like, you know, I was supposed to be like, you know, like groomed for the priesthood and I would have certain Mm -hmm. roles. And my transness planted questions about religion for me. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like, well, either I am misunderstanding myself somehow or the received, you know, information that I'm getting from my mom's faith tradition is like wrong somehow or at an even deeper level. It's like, you know, if this is all true, um, you know, it's just like I got something to say to God because it's like 
this isn't anything I chose about myself. Yeah. This is just how I am. And my, my transness is something that definitely planted questions for me about, you know, let's call it cosmology or like the ultimate nature of reality and truth. Speaking you know, of that, truth, I don't know how RLDS kind of arrival at truth. I don't know exactly how how it worked culturally within my upbringing. It was that we're supposed to pray, seek answers to prayers, listen to authorities. There were scriptures and prophets, but also get confirmation of that. And so there was the sense that we are kind of an authority that we are supposed to rely on how we feel about things. And so that, it seems like... still still small voice. Right? Yeah, right. So it seems right. like a conflict for you is to, to have a religious tradition that's saying, trust yourself, listen to how you feel, but also saying, except you're not supposed to feel like that. And that part doesn't count. That, sh you know, fight that. Right. And, you know, I what I, I can say about the religious side of my upbringing is that because of my feelings of being trans and my questions about like, mm, what does this mean? Like, how do I deal with this? Like, will the feelings go away? Can I study this and learn an answer of some kind through my studies that will like resolve this question in my mind? Or mm, should I transition? Like, what's the story? What would that mean? You know, I never felt it was bad or wrong you know just like i just always felt well this is just how i am this is hmm. fine it's got to be okay mm -hmm. and if it's not okay it's like i got something to say to that guy upstairs because <laughs> okay. it's like this is like something that was handed to me you know um and so yeah i said it raised all kinds of questions in my mind about what is the right thing to do and how to move forward and you know i think it planted being transplanted the seeds of my intellectualism as like it made mm. me want to research and you know ask historical kinds of questions mm -hmm. you know because even as a kid when i was starting to learn i would say around age 10 that hormones and surgery were a possibility you know it's like it planted the historical question in my mind of it's like huh I feel this way about myself. I would certainly like to take hormones and reshape my, my body shape. Hmm. Um, but before that was possible, it's like before they discovered hormones or like in, had anesthesia, it's like, did people who felt the way that I do, it's like, well, what do they do? You know, how hmm. did they deal with it? So there was that historical question in my head of like, could somebody like me have existed in the past? Or if somebody had the feelings that I had at a time before, mm -hmm. you know, current trans medicine was available, it's like, what would they do? You know, like that's, to me, that's a really interesting historical question. Mm. Uh, but the, the religious questions, I would say it steered me towards having a more, intellectual rather than more fundamentalist kind of um, outlook. Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't like, well, it says this in the Bible, so that must be true. Mm -hmm. You know, it sort of led me in the direction of going like, well, you know, it's like there's many different ways that like scripture could be interpreted. And, you know, like, and I've studied religion. I actually wrote my dissertation on early Mormon history yeah. and, you know, know a reasonable amount about not only that, but, you know, broader history of religion. And that, you know, I I knew there were like many different intellectual traditions in both, you know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism about the what's the relationship of the people who are people of the book to like the books that they are people in relationship to different hermeneutic and heuristic traditions, you know, different relationships to scripture, different like intellectual questions about how to 
how does any like particular set of religious beliefs relate to philosophical or cosmological questions? So I just had this sense as an adolescent growing up in the faith tradition that my family was a part of that I was part of its intellectual wing somehow, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and maybe like, you know, people I'd hear at church preaching about something. It's like, well, I, you know, maybe I was a, you know, snotty little smart ass kid, <laughs> you know, thing like, I know better than they do. And yeah. it's just like, and you know, I'm going to like get a college education and I'm going to learn all of this and I'm going to learn. It's like, and then by the time I got into my later teens and early twenties, I really realized that there wasn't much of a, what I would think of as like a progressive intellectual tradition that was available to me right. through the RLDS tradition. Right. Uh, although, you know, I will say too that, you know, that even though I have had religious questions and doubts, you know, since I was in my early adolescence, even though I no longer practice and, you know, don't consider myself a, a, a member of the LDS communities of faith, even though I felt like I was not able to find a, uh, a home in that tradition, I respect the way that they have continued to evolve as a church, as an institution, you know, that they, they started admitting women to the priesthood or we should like approach the book of Mormon as something that you don't have to think of as being literally true. You know, I, and affirm I always, queer relationships and stuff now too. The community yeah. of Christ, to, whereas the Salt Lake-based LDS Church hasn't yeah, taken yeah. any of those moves. Yeah, yeah. You know, did I, that affect you, know, you at all too? Because the community of Christ was more progressive and sort of moving those directions than but, the LDS Church. Yeah, but you were and already so, kind of like disconnecting at that point, or yeah, I was. You know, like this was back in the '60s and '70s. You know, like mm-hmm. I have not had any active. Um, involvement with the church probably since around like 1979 Mm -hmm. 80 or so um but you know i have family members who are still actively involved it's like Mm -hmm. i have both an aunt and an uncle both both departed uh as of you know the present who were both members of the priesthood my 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 family history is like you know very much connected with the rlds tradition but i said i'm not actively a part of it and haven't been for decades. Do you think being trans was a big contributor to that or is it a general intellectual bent and other yeah, things? Yeah, you know, I I do think it my being trans contributes to me not being um part of that community. Like I remember as an adolescent when you know, I was I don't want to say getting pressured, but there were people in the um in the priesthood were saying like you know we've received a priesthood call for you Mm -hmm. and you know it's like you should be ordained it's whatever i'm going like yeah i don't think so because and they didn't um, ordain women yet right at that point yeah it was kind of like you know i just think this is uh, not the right thing for me and you know there was a lot of you know questions like Mm -hmm. oh but you have such leadership potential and you can whatever it's like yeah but there's the thing that i'm not telling you which mm-hmm. is that you're thinking i'm a guy and i'm not and so right. yeah that that was basically it you know what did so, transitioning look like for you then well i didn't transition until i was 30 29 30 um but i knew about myself early on by the time i was in my teens i really felt like i needed to come out to people that i was romantically or you know sexually attracted to you know, and I've always been, I've always been oriented towards women. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a trans lesbian. Okay. Um, and that, 
you know, it's like the women who were interested in me, they were interested in me because they thought I was a guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe the things that they liked about me were like, oh, like there's something different about you. You're not like the other guys. It's like, <laughs> yeah, if I yeah. could only tell you more. Yes. Um, but, you know, I do feel like there was something that, you know, a, a number of people that I dated found attractive about me or, you know, I mean, not at a physical level, but just sort of at an emotional mm. relationship level. But, you know, it would always get to that point of going like, uh, this feels false to me or they would do something that I perceived as homophobic or transphobic mm. and going like, eh, they're not sort of down for this. All mm-hmm. right. You know, and things would drift away. But by the time I was in my late teens, I, you know, I just thought, you know what I need to do is like, I need to find like bisexual women to be involved with like people who like are totally okay about eroticizing a same sex relationship, but are not put off by male anatomy. Well, they also haven't been part of the binary, you know, maybe there's not the same kind of hangups because they're not typically, you know, they're not heterosexual. Exactly. You know, and that I thought, you know, like, let me like find people like that and come out early in the relationship Hmm. and see how it goes. And, but did you know you that you would transition though at that point? Well, you know, it was an. I would say that I knew how I felt about myself, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sure exactly what I would do, you know. And f- finding in my late teens somebody to be with that I was open with, who accepted me, and it's like it was part of how we related to each other in our mm-hmm. intimate relationships. It's like to me, like that felt great. You mm-hmm. know, it's kind of like, wait, you see me. As a person, we understand each other, we're relating to each other, and maybe I don't need to do anything hmm. physical, you know? Um, we, had a, we had a child together, so it's like, you know, that was also, you know, a, a consideration hmm. for me. So um, more than just like figuring out this category and taking these exact steps, it sounds like the relationship that you could build was really what you were seeking after. However, body changes or hormones yeah. or whatever else, yeah. like you needed a yeah. safe place. A, right. And I I feel like by my late teens, early 20s, I'd certainly found something that was more satisfying than what, you know, I had known as a teenager or, you know, young adolescent. Yeah. But it also became clear to me very quickly. Well, I don't say very quickly. It eventually <laughs> became clear to me that it was not enough that it meant the world to me that I had a partner who recognized me. But then I had a son who didn't know this about me Hmm. and I had friends and colleagues and I just thought this isn't just who am I to myself? Who am I to my intimate partner? It's like, it's like, who am I to anybody who's significant about me? Hmm. Who, how, how am I in the world? You know, how do, how do I relate to the world? And I just felt like I could not continue down that path living as a man did it just Um, feel like pretending all the time it felt like pretending it felt like i was really invisible Hmm. you know um you know it felt like it felt frustrating that when people related to me they were relating to what i considered to be a false image of myself Hmm. you know not like who i really was and so it just felt very isolating it felt very Hmm. alone you know it you know, sometimes I would think about like, this is like some science fiction movie where like, you know, I'm a little consciousness like operating hmm. some, you know, 
you know, rock'em sock'em robot out there. You yeah. know, it's kind of like, it's like, there's this body that looks the way that it looks in the world and I'm inside here, you know, manipulating it and making it go and speaking through its mouth. But it's like what people are seeing is not actually me, mm. you know, and that I just sort of wanted to be, to be present, you know, to wow. be, um, you know, to, to manifest. So myself. that's what you did. You mean, th- then you made choices to do it. Yeah. I was, I was held in place for a number of years by that relationship that I was yeah. in. And, you know, and I have great compassion for my ex partner. Mm. Um, what I, what I realized was that I was her closet, mm. that, mm, that she was somebody who had, you know, queer feelings, who was oriented towards women, but actually came from a very homophobic family hmm. and that she found in me something that felt emotionally right but passed as straight in the world right. and every time i would go like i just don't think i can do this anymore she would freak out because it would be right. like outing her right and i just like tried for a number of years because there was so much at stake i mean not just the relationship but mm-hmm. our child yeah right um, who you know i will say to your audience is just fine is 38 years old now as a you know happy healthy well-adjusted adult human being who came from a queer trans family uh kids are kids are all right yes. you know no no damage there um that i that i know of other than the you know routine come on yeah i was gonna say child, every you know, we all like, damage in some ways our like, kids like. it's like any help for therapy whatever you need <laughs> yeah. um you know but we we get along great and um uh, he's got a good relationship with both of his both of his parents um but um but yeah i eventually just got to the point of saying like, I, I got to put, got to put this burden down. You know, I've got to, got to like be who I am in the world and let the chips fall where they may. And it's, it's been wonderful, honestly. I mean, it's been, it was hard, you know, like it was hard. I mean, there's employment discrimination, there's stigma, there's, you know, I lost relationships over people's like ignorance or prejudice or freak out. But by and large, everybody who really mattered to me is still with me family feels strong and uh i've have an amazing network of friends and colleagues i've had long-term relationships with people the partner i'm with now i've been with for more than 25 years um what did that coming out process look like because now i'll see people maybe talk about it on social media or mm -hmm. send an email around to their family like what was your coming out process like at that moment in time oh gosh it's multifaceted because, you know, I, I, I felt like I needed to manage the flow of information about my transition mm-hmm. with work and career. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was at the tail end of graduate school. Mm-hmm. I was finishing up my dissertation the year that I was like deciding to transition. Wow. And I just thought... I didn't really trust that my dissertation director would, you know, do the right thing or be cool about yeah. about it all. So I actually, I mean, I was already like socially and hormonally transitioning in my life, but wasn't letting my university or my advisors know about it yet. So I was sort of living a double life yeah. for about a year in there. And then after I finished the dissertation, had the title page signed, you know, degree was awarded, you know, like it was, it was, it was done. It was in the can. The very next day I went in and filed a petition to change the name on the title page of my dissertation, huh. uh, which was, you know, it's wow, like yeah. your dissertations don't have 
you know, gender markers on them. They just right. have your, have your name, but it's just like, as soon as I actually had degree in hand, I filed the name change, but then in my social world, it's like, it's that it was kind of bifurcated. There were people that I knew in the San Francisco queer community who like I was out to as trans for like from the late eighties forward. I definitely had, um, a queer and trans community, but I also had this whole world of family and academia that mm-hmm. didn't know this about me. So my coming out process was really one of sort of integrating the two of coming out to people I wasn't out to yet. And, you know, by and large, it's like pe- people were maybe shocked or um, curious or surprised. Uh, but for the most part, people in my community stuck with me. And then with my family, I remember telling my my son, who was eight at the time, and I said, look, I want to tell you something about why, you know, your mom and I have broken up and aren't living together. Mm-hmm. And it's just that I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a boy. You know, you're a boy and that's a totally fine way to be. But I've never really felt like one and it makes me feel really unhappy. And so I decided that I'm going to change and be a woman. And he's, you know, as a precocious little eight year old, he says, humans can do that. I knew it was possible in some fish, you know, in a fish, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> you know, and I said, well, you know, humans and fish do it in different ways, yeah. um, you know, but, uh, but you're right. You know, some fish change sex over the course of their lives. Um, and that, that just kind of like happens for various reasons, but you know, I'll have to do this on purpose. Yeah. And he was listening and, and then he said, so I'm going to have two moms. Hmm. Cool. And I thought, <laughs> all right, you know, he's, he's yeah. okay. You know, he's okay about this. And he has been, um, coming out to my, the rest of my family. When I told my mother, um, you know, it's like I was waiting, I, I was waiting to publicly transition and change my name and gender markers and, you know, sort of how I dressed and all mm-hmm. that until I came out to my mom. Hmm. And I, I told her, you know, I said, look, I want to come home for a visit. Um, I'd like for us to spend a day together. I've got some big news that I want to tell you. She said, what, are you all right? I said, I'm fine. You know, hmm. I'm, I'm fine. It's just, you know, big news that I want to tell you. So I went for a family visit. She said like, oh, I actually have to go into work this morning, but like, let's t- talk at lunch. And, you know, come and I told her, I just said, um, okay, mom, I'm just going to like lay it out. I have always felt that I'm transsexual and I'm going to change gender, um, you know, pretty much as soon as I get back mm. to San Francisco. And how are you doing with that? And she says, well, um, I thought you were going to tell me that you were gay and HIV positive. So I guess this mm. is good news. Wow, yeah. You know, and I said, I told you, I said that, that I would consider being HIV positive bad news you know i mean not sure, like it's, it's, a, not, it's a real health you know, issue yeah right you know but i said i would consider that bad news but i just said it's big news and so it's like yeah it's a big a big change and i you know i just told her a little bit more about stuff going on in my life and i said how are you doing with this mom and she says i'm in complete denial you can tell me anything right now <laughs> you know and uh, told her a little bit more and then you know she said well i actually have to go back to work and finish something up before the end of the day but 
why don't you just go to my closet, find anything that you like that fits you. Why don't you just take it? And then, you know, like we can go like shopping to replace all of that or buy some things that you want. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Got to go. You know? And so that was, that was mom, you know, that she, um, you know, I don't think she ever quite got it. I don't think she totally understood it, but, uh, she was a fierce mama bear of, a of a mother who like loves her kids and totally has their back in all ways, shapes, forms, and fashions. And yeah, she, she never abandoned me and she was always very supportive. And before she died, um, you know, many, this was in 1992 and three that I was coming out to her and she was with us on this earth until 2020. Oh, wow. Uh, but in her, her later years, I mean, she told me, you know, m many times that she was proud of me and of what I had done with my life. And she was you know, totally accepting uh, of my life. And as it turns out, one of my brother's kids um, came out as trans in high school. He, he's transitioned oh, now wow. too. So it's like, it's a family affair. Wow. Yeah. I have to say, as a parent, I've thought about the possibility of this with my own children and the two things that come to mind. And, and I confess, like this is for me, it, it doesn't feel great to say this out loud, but I really would love to hear your feedback on this is if, if my child had a conversation like that with me, and I think it would probably happen relatively early on. This is more common these days. Mm -hmm. The two things that I would think about are number one, I did have like sort of hopes and dreams about about, or not even maybe hopes and dreams, but just expectations, cultural expectations about what this what this child is and gender and sex are, are, are part of all that. And that would be hard to let go of in some ways as a parent, number one. And then number two, really just a, a concern and a fear that this child is, will face difficulties and prejudice. And so I, I would want to personally, I'm in a place where I've, I've known enough trans people and, and really learned about it enough to be accepting of this and not, ex, not like that needs my acceptance in the sense of like making it right or anything, but just like I could be okay with it. But that would be hard still though, is thinking, oh, oof, you've got some, maybe some things you're going to have to face and that makes me sad. Yeah, well, you know, I think you just, you hit both nails right on the head, you know, like those are the two big parental concerns, um, you know, that you want your kids to thrive in life because you love them and you want them to have like enriching, rewarding lives, you know, at the emotional level. You want them to find people to love and be loved by. You want them to feel like they're going to have some success in what they do or some happiness, some contentment in their life. And, you know, when you see, when you see those things out there in the world, that could be stumbling blocks mm -hmm. for that. It's like, yeah, you know, you're, your parents' heart, you know, it's like goes, oh, you know, I hope they're okay. And what can I do to smooth the path? Yeah. I totally get that. And, you know, I can say it's like I have had a, a very self-fulfilling life as a trans person. You know, I feel like even though it complicated things, even though I have definitely experienced prejudice and discrimination, I have been able to work with that and mm -hmm. to, to have a life that feels very livable to me, you know, a life worth living. Hmm. Um, and I think the um, stigma and prejudice, you know, um, discrimination that came with like being out as trans, particularly early in the transition before I kind of like got more fully reestablished in my life. It's like, it, it's real, you know, it definitely slows you down, but it also teaches you things if you survive it, you know, <laughs> 
And I, I totally value the experience that I gained. I mean, I think it sharpened my political sensibilities. I think it created more empathy hmm. for me. I think it required me to learn different skills, you know, to, to live my life than I would have needed to learn otherwise. And, you know, I, I have I have zero regrets about hmm. the transition. Um, it is just what needed to happen. It's what I needed to do to stay alive as me. Hmm. Um, and I'm just so thankful of the people in my community who came along on the journey with me. Hmm. There's a, a, a survey that takes place generally once every five years, like the National Transgender Health Survey, that shows that the single greatest predictor of how well trans people are going to do post-transition is whether or not they've been abandoned by their families of mm -hmm. origin. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that is the most important safety net for helping people make the social transition and not fall through the cracks and wind up someplace they don't want to wind up. Uh, so, you know, again, if I'm, if I'm preaching today, it's just like, it's like telling the parents of trans kids or telling the family members of, you know, adult transitioners, it's like, do not abandon your loved ones. You know, it's like, yeah, maybe it's not you. what you were expecting of their life, but it is a life worth living. And, you know, at, at some level, I think it's no different than any other major change, you know, like your kid tells you it's like, oh, I'm getting divorced and like mm. you really liked their, you know, yeah. their ex. Or they said, you know what? I've decided that I'm going to become a Buddhist monk and go live yeah. in a monastery. And you go like, but wait, <laughs> you know, it's like, where am I going to, am I going to see you? You know? Yeah. So any, any kind of major life change like that is hard. So, you know, I just appreciate your honesty and saying like, ah, you know, I had gendered expectations. Yeah for what my child would be. And I need to reset my expectations. And that's your work to do, right? You know, it's like, right. it, it can be very pleasurable. It's like, of like, like, oh, here is this person I know so well, my child. I like that you said that in your, in, kind of in the introductory materials where you say it's interesting that a lot of times the reaction that people tend to have, especially cisgendered people, uh, when they find out that someone's trans is either like revulsion or disgust or confusion or distaste or condemnation. And and you say, why not curiosity? Yeah, you know, I, you know I, I think the deeper answer to that is when people who've never really thought about transness, either in like somebody that they care about or in themselves, is that, you know, it's just like it's kicking the ground out from under their feet, you know? It's just, it's like, but wait, like I don't know how to relate to this person. Like yeah. the, the idea of gender being almost like a you know, a container, you know, that holds your personhood. And when you like crack that container or say like, actually, it's like, I need a different container here for my sense of self that's shaped in a different gender. To encounter that, I think it can make the person who encounters the trans person afraid. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's very disorienting. Mm -hmm. And it can, can result in reactive, defensive, aggressive kinds of, you know, attitude or actions toward the trans person. I mean, it's why, you know, I think so, so many men who discover that somebody they're like attracted to, or maybe dating or just picked up is like, is a trans woman or like mm -hmm. they, when that is like revealed that there can be a very homophobic 
reaction. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, you're like, what does this mean for me? Right. Like, what does it make me? You know, it's like, ah, must kill you. Yeah. You know, violence um, does result. The vi- violence does result out of that, you know, panic in the person who encounters the trans person because of what they think it means about themselves. Mm, mm, interesting. <clears throat> you know, so, you know, I, it's still a problem, but I will say, you know, I've seen a lot of change in the 30 plus years, you know, since my own transition, hmm. you know, which I also want to say is like, is not a one-time thing. It's not like a, you know, one and done, you know, hit it and quit it, you know? Yeah. You, you just change, just like flip the switch. Tra- transition is a ongoing process. I mean, we are all, I mean, everyone humans it's like we are not the same person tomorrow that we were yesterday you know we are we are all changing yeah i've Uh, learned a lot from a friend kelly potter just seeing her relation to sports and stuff that as she's transitioned and and what hormone therapy has has changed her relationship to her body in ways that i you know that she didn't couldn't have anticipated because she couldn't have experienced it and so there's just a lot of of factors that, as you said, this is like an ongoing process. I mean, she came out as trans a, a while ago and is still sort of learning about what this new body does and all, you know, all the implications of it. Exactly. And, you know, bodies don't stand still for any of us. And as I, right. as I age, you know, like I said, right. I, I was transitioning in my late twenties, early thirties, and now I'm in my early sixties. And, you know, there's a lot I notice about like ways bodies change, you know, that actually have something to do with, you know, metabolism and hormones and, you know, fat distribution and muscle tone. It's just like, there's all kinds of things that change about your body as you age. And I keep comparing those age-related changes to the gender transition related changes and like there's actually a lot of similarities there Mm, interesting and before we move on to the next section we're going to get into some definitions about transgender we're going to get into some of the history but i wanted to ask one more personal question here is in the beginning of the book you describe yourself these different roles that you occupy a historian an activist a cultural theorist a media maker and an academic who you say has tried to chronicle the various dimensions of transgender experience and i wondered if any of those roles in particular are more comfortable for you and if any of those are less comfortable for you, because when you're a trans person writing about trans issues, it almost seems like you kind of have to do some activism as you're doing that. So any of these roles, are any of these roles really more at home for you? You know, I, I think ultimately my my deepest calling is as a storyteller. You know? mm. And so if I think about everything that I'm doing as storytelling, it's just different modalities, venues, audiences we're telling stories um, about the world, and and so I I do feel very comfortable in that role, but it you know it changes over time, right? It's like I got a PhD because I wanted to be a history professor, uh, mm-hmm. telling stories about the past. Uh, my transness really complicated that. I've mm-hmm. never actually worked in a history department. Um, it took me fifteen years between PhD and professorhood where I was working in the community. I ran the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco for a while. I was a filmmaker. Still am a filmmaker. An award-winning um, filmmaker. An award-winning filmmaker. Um, and, you know, I, I actually really love that kind of public-facing work. Uh, but I did eventually um, have a chance to enter the professoriate. And I kind of joke about it back in the 90s and early aughts to say like, you know, I'm 
I'm never going to get a job as a professor until people that I knew as undergrads are now like tenured faculty members who want to hire me as (laughs) a senior scholar in a field that I have helped, you know, pioneer. And uh, it's exactly the way it played out. So around, you know, I taught on and off as an adjunct uh, while making my living in other ways. You'd have to with adjuncting. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, It's not a a, a sustainable (laughs) mode of life. Um, But, uh, you know, I kind of kept my hand in. I published. I, you know, edited things. You know, it's just like I still did scholarship, but I made my living in the nonprofit sector and as an independent, you know, filmmaker. Right on. That's Susan Stryker, author of the book Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution, which we're talking about today. She's also Professor Emerita of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Arizona and a founding co-editor of TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly. All right. So let's (laughs) – I know we're a ways into this now, but let's define transgender. You say that the word transgender itself has only come into widespread use kind of in the past few decades and that it's still under construction. So how do you use transgender in this book? Uh, right, Blair. The first documented instance of using a trans plus gender neologism, um, you know, made up word in the English language is from 1965. Mm. Uh, so uh, we had a medical doctor uh, writing in this like handbook of you know mental health about what he was calling transsexualism, but then says, but actually it would be more accurate to call it transgenderism. Mm. Um, so that was the first known use of, of the term. And why did but he make way, that distinction? Well, maybe a, a quick thing to say about where the word gender came from. It's like it was, wasn't until the late 1950s and early 1960s that social scientists and neuroscientists and endocrinologists, you know, um, came up with this new conceptual system of like thinking about sex, gender, and identity. It's like the idea like sex is biological, Mm -hmm. you know, gender identity is like what you think of yourself as man or woman and gender role is like, how are you perceived socially? What social roles do you perform? And so that idea of sex, gender, gender identity, gender role was like a new conceptual framework, new set of vocabularies in the late 50s and early 60s. Until that time, gender wasn't a word that people used to talk about bodies. It was a word hmm. that people used to talk about grammar and language, you know, like nouns, you know, masculine, feminine, neuter, you know, and that linguistic gender is just the, what are the rules by which we arbitrarily assign certain words to certain categories of words, you know, like, so masculine, feminine, neuter, you know, we have, we have three genders in English, but other languages have no genders or many genders. But it's just ba- basically gender as the, um, yeah, the arbitrary set of rules for how you treat all members of the same class of things in a similar way. And these, you know, s- scientists are like, well, that's actually like a good metaphor for talking about what we do with humans. It's like, how do we like categorize bodies into categories? How do we place bodies into categories? It's like that could be called like gendering. It's like you put an object in a gender of 
similarly treated things. So yeah, this book in 1965 was the first one to apply that new nomenclatural system um, or conceptual vocabulary to to trans issues. But how I think about transgender it's like you could think of it as an identity label there are some people who are called transgenders you know it's like it is a name for them Mm -hmm. but i i think of it in a different way it's like i think of transgender as not being uh limited to a certain kind of people that gets a new name in the mid-1960s i think of transgender as the practice of moving away from a socially assigned sex gender position, you know, um, and that that's really broad, you know, it's like, it's like, it's moving away from something culture told you that you were, that you didn't pick for yourself and you are moving away from that towards something else, you know, towards some other gender to move towards no gender, you know, to move back and forth across the gender divide. Um, you know, that, that I, I think we can imagine transgender as this really expansive word for talking about all of the different ways that people trans genders, you know, mm-hmm. it's like rather than an identity label, it's like it's a name for practices of moving away from a non-consensually assigned gendered starting place in life. That really, However one does it. That was really helpful to me to, to see it as a process kind of term that doesn't have a set final destination or just set plastic identity or sort of like static identity, but rather a, a process that acknowledges that these roles are kind of socially constructed and that some people don't don't fit into those constructions, and therefore they seek stay. They seek that home. They and, and and it requires a journey. It requires exploration. Yeah, and I and I think all of that, you know. And I I think of transgender as a big tent. Yeah, you know, p- people in trans communities can like you know really get their knickers in a twist about like no, don't call me by that name. Call me mm-hmm. by this name. And transgender is really different than non-binary. And transgender mm-hmm. is different than transsexual. And you know blah, gender blah, queer blah, blah. and other things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And for me, it's like I usually I usually actually don't use the word transgender. I'll just say like trans. Right. You know, just like as a shorthand. And it's like anything that kind of like troubles and unsettles and refigures gender like whatever you think that is however you're doing it let's just call it trans big tent (laughs) so that's the way that i i look at it i love that your book basically also says hey all of this is going to change and you've really got to be plugged into the ongoing conversations because these terms will change some will offend some people others will offend other people and so instead of throwing up our hands or being frustrated with that i I see your book as an invitation to just remain engaged and uh, maybe not freak out so much. Uh, if, if you say the wrong thing, uh, take correction or, or learn and just continue to grow. Yeah, I, I'm glad you're taking that away from the book. That is definitely my um, my, my hope, you know, and, and it, it goes two ways, you know, it's just like I want to say to curious, well-intentioned, respectful cis people who are interested in trans for whatever reason, it's just like as long as like you're coming to this with 
a sense of like respect for the other person and genuine like open-minded curiosity it's like it's not good pedagogy to like scold people about things they don't <laughs> know right and so it's just like i i really want to model that sense of like if it's a legit question and you just like want to know just like i'm not gonna like say like you said that wrong you know like that just doesn't doesn't help and i get that too though like it would be it's pretty irritating well you know you can feel that way you know and i think it's always fine to say like you know actually i don't want to talk about that right yeah or it's kind of like yeah you know why don't you go ask somebody else or like like, (laughs) you you don't have to ask me that question there's this thing called the internet and there are search terms it's like why don't you google something why don't you read a fact you know it's just like you can do that but you can do it in a nice way yeah you know but general genuinely you know for me if somebody's like asking me a question from a place of like a real desire to know and they're like open to hearing something it's like you know i feel like it's this that's the teacher in me that wants to say sure let me answer that question for you here's my take on it the flip side of the coin is like i do feel um sometimes in trans communities that like I can be a person who's like, y'all just settle down a little bit, just chill <laughs> out. Just like, you know, like, let's not like, let's not lose our That's going to irritate over. some people too, by right. the way, right? Like you probably right. irritate some people. They're yeah. like, hey, you no, know, we got to like really be vocal yeah. about this, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like, but vocal about what? I mean, I really feel like we are in it in terms of the cultural struggle right now. It's like, it is such yeah. a reactionary period. Yeah. It's like, so, so it's like to, you know, quote Ben Franklin from, you know, back in the 18th century, if we don't all hang together, we're all going to hang separately mm-hmm. here. Yeah, yeah. So who, who, yeah, stick who's, together. who's got your back? Who's yeah. on your side? It's like, you know what? It's like, I really couldn't care less if somebody said transgendered instead of transgender mm. or if somebody uses a word in the wrong way or like kind of sort of doesn't really totally get what you're doing. It's like, basically it's like, are we on the same side of this thing? Are we all part of the herd of cats that is vaguely going in the same direction towards some kind of alternative to the reactionary onslaught we are experiencing right now? And if the answer is yes, it's like, you know what? It's like, let's have a, a discussion over, you know, a, a cup of tea later tonight about nomenclature, mm-hmm. but I am not going to read you the riot act about it. You Do you know, have the same is- kind of attitude to like accidental or deliberate misgendering where someone might say, oh, hello, sir, or, you know, deliberate this type of thing? misgendering, I have no patience with, and I will totally get up on somebody's grill mm-hmm. about that. But if it's just accidental, it's kind of like give the person the benefit of the doubt, politely, you know, um, generously, you know, ask them to do something different mm-hmm. sort of explore that moment with them but you know but particularly if if it's a family member uh you know like you were saying earlier it's like we have gendered scripts in our heads for mm-hmm. the people that we love and we think about them in a particular way and it can just take time you even know, linguistically, like, the hardest thing for me is just how gendered. And if you stop and think about it, I'm seeing like people complain about, oh, they're grooming kids by introducing them to the fact of different gender identities. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like we we groom kids in the sense of instilling a belief in them about male and female, boy and girl from the very beginning. And it's pervasive. Like we can't hardly refer to a person without it being about what we think their genitals are. And if you think about it, that's actually really weird. It is. Yeah. But, you know, I'm glad you brought up the part about linguistics because I do feel like 
you know, we, we, we become very habituated and like, I think even our, our brains get wired in oh, a particular yeah. way through repetition For sure. that we internalize certain grammatical rules in our, you know, neurological processes. And that it, it's like learning somebody's gendered pronoun and then asking them to change it. It's like, it's kind of like learning a different language mm-hmm. that you haven't been habituated to speak. Yeah, just from a pragmatist <laughs> standpoint, I'm like, can't we just they everybody? But you know, then then again, I'm I'm speaking from a place of privilege when I say something like that. But I just, it, it, it's interesting to me that like since at least the middle of the 19th century, there's many different efforts to introduce new pronouns hmm. into English. I mean, not even related to to trans questions, but mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with the fact that English does not have what's called an epicene pronoun in the third person. You know, it's like you can't talk about a person. You can say I, and that's not gendered. You can say you, and that's not gendered, you know. So you're speaking of yourself, speaking directly to another person, but speaking of a person, referring right. to them without addressing them. Right. You've got he, she, he, and she, it. Yeah. You know? Right. And so and now they, right? But that's pluralized well, and that's what people would say is it's not a singular Well, see that that's that's the interesting thing for for me is that you point to the, the they them question and the use of they as a singular and I really think that's the way to go. Yeah. And it's like I, it's a word that we already use. I we lean on it a lot. Already yeah. use the word right. they in right. colloquial speech. Yep. Um, you can look back in the historical record, and there's there's the use of the word they for third person singular. I mean, in like Shakespeare and mm-hmm. Chaucer, yep. and it's like it's like back to like the you know fourteen hundreds, thirteen hundreds. The thing that I've taken to doing in my classes instead of doing the pronoun go round, like okay, everybody say what your pronouns are, which I think can put trans and non-binary and gender questioning people on the spot, and that it becomes kind of you know a hollow lip service kind of exercise what i tell my students first day is to say like look i am just going to call everybody they um it's like that's where we're going to start and we're going to treat it like the formal and familiar distinction you know it's just like if i don't know you well enough to know what your pronoun preferences and uses are i'm just going to call you they that's where everybody's going to start out and if you would like me to call you something else then invite me invite me mm-hmm. in to gender you in a more personal way hmm. yeah and you know it's kind of a fun little exercise to just practice that sense of like why am I assuming that I know what that person's gender identity is? It's like, I see what their body looks like, but what's the relationship between what their body looks like and how they think of themselves? And so, you know, I'm not going to get up in their business and say, hi, please tell me your pronoun. It's just like, I'm just going (laughs) to, I'm just going to like do that vague, formal, they, them for everyone and let people come to me. Now you mentioned kind of back in early American history here. So back in the earliest days of colonial settlement, for example, you say that there have always been people who have contradicted social expectations about what was considered typical for women or for men, and that uh, you find people in the records that don't quite fit these things. I I, I learned a lot of new things here. Even, for example, I don't know why I hadn't realized this, but even the word transvestite, which is one of the earliest terms, I think, that that we see in, in the historical record, 
literally meant like someone who's wearing different vestments, like vest. I don't know why I didn't even realize that that's what that was referring to. Vestments, yeah, transvestism. Yeah, but you know, it's, I think one of the most conceptually or theoretically interesting things about trying to do trans history is that when you look at the historical record, you can absolutely unquestionably see a wide range of gender like styles and concepts of people who i would say transgender but there there's a very different conceptual vocabulary it's like how do you talk about transness before you have trans terminology you know like that that's a kind of a interesting meta historical question and so there are definitely like terms that people used back in the day that got a trans angle to them but they're like totally not in use today i mean like molly you know like molly was a a word in the 17th and 18th centuries for people we might call either effeminate homosexual men or trans women, you know, depending on how we want to name them. But basically somebody with a male biology who Molly kind of meant like soft uh, or woman-like, you know, from the word, the, the Latin word, I'm going to mispronounce it, mulieribus, you know, uh, girl or woman, um, like in Spanish, mujer, the word Molly, the slang word Molly was related to that. And, you know, people don't really... You, you don't use that word anymore, but it's like it was a word that was very specific to a time and place that mm-hmm. arguably is a kind of trans-ish identity or like the word tribade, you know, which comes from a Greek word that means to rub and that a tribade was somebody who was, as we would say now, assigned female at birth who was oriented towards women. Another word describing people like that back in the day was confricatrice you know i love that yeah, one, not know? heard any of these i know so right because like vocabulary changes uh conceptual were they negative words change. too though were these sort of like morally problematic most like, oh, of these it's... were morally problematic words words that were yeah. imposed from the outside upon yeah. people perceived to be deviant but they were also words that people could take up for themselves and particularly Molly's people self-identified as mm-hmm. Molly's. Yeah, so so like I said, the the language changes. The language changes over time. Terms come in and out of favor. Conceptual frameworks change, you know, as well as particular words. But you can look in the historical record and see people who do things that look an awful lot like trans, what we call trans today. Mm-hmm. You know, that I have a friend and colleague, the historian Jen Mannion, who has a book out in the last year called Female Husbands. And that, you know, Jen just writes about, like, you know, this term, female husbands, starts showing up in the middle of the 18th century and it seems to fall out of favor in the early 20th century. So I just sort of want to do this history history of like who who were people who called themselves female husbands like what was up with that and what Jen winds up saying is like I don't want to call these people I don't want to say these are transgender people but I do want to say that they are people who transed gender 
Yeah, and I think the d distinction there is like I, in disability studies, this was similar where when people try to diagnose past historical figures and say, oh, was Mozart autistic or something like this, the, that category itself didn't exist in his context and the way he was treated and thought of and the way he behaved was culturally conditioned such that what we think of today as autism in some ways didn't actually exist back then. We, we want to kind of think like that everything that exists today can just have this exact parallel in the past, but that's really not exactly how it works because the culture's have differences. Yeah, you know, there's a philosopher, cultural theory person named Ian Hacking. He actually does like a mm -hmm. history and philosophy of science. Um, but he he writes about what he calls looping effects. Uh, and he's got this great article called Making Up People. And, you know, and he, mm -hmm. kind of the, the argument is that it's like, all right, let's talk about tuberculosis. We could certainly do a social history of tuberculosis about how it's treated and how people understood it and what the scientific understanding was at the time or what public health measures were taken, you know, and how ideas about tuberculosis turn into policy or inform epidemics, you know, yada, yada, yada. But whatever the human activities are there, there is still this thing called the tuberculosis, you know, bacterium, regardless right. of what we're doing right it's like and yep. our way of thinking about it doesn't necessarily change that organism but then when we're talking about human social categorization there's a different order of problem that gets introduced which is that ways that you think about things inform ways that people think about themselves and you kind of get mm -hmm. this looping effect where Nobody would have used the word transgender before 1965, mm -hmm. but kind of like once that word is out there, you know, how are people taking that up and using it as a form of, you know, self-interpretation of going like, ah, right. this thing about me that I know, it's like there is a word that kind of sort of fits for me and you start relating yourself to it. And so that over time, you know, there's this looping relationship that happens between how people think of themselves and existing ways of thinking about people. It's like it's a you know total like feedback loop. Uh, and so, yeah, the historical question in there, like you, you raised the question about autism. I think that's be like exactly, that's exactly the right point to make that there was something about Mozart that kind of sort of maps onto what we think about autism today, but didn't really, it's like that was not part of the milieu yeah. at his time. It wasn't how he thought of himself. And so you ask that question, it's like, is it a useful framework for thinking about Mozart through the category autism? Or do you just want to say, I've learned from disability studies that, you know, there's these sort of interesting kinds of conceptual and historical questions that we can get into. How do we talk about... Mozart in a way that recognizes a potential neurodivergence without like anachronistically projecting right. contemporary terminology into a past where it's like it would it would be inappropriate to think about it that way. Okay, as as people approach this book, I want them to know it, it really does lay out this history sort of chronologically. We we're introduced to a lot of developments in medical science and in psychology, and we meet pivotal figures who made discoveries or who uh, people who. Again, kind of were they trans back then? You know, people that uh, were trans in the sense of of being uh, on a journey away from societal norms and things. And so uh, I wanted to zoom in just on a few of these. One of them was Christine Jorgensen. Uh, this is a person who became 
you say, the most famous transgender person in the world back in the 1950s uh, with news of her so-called sex change, right? This idea that she had a surgery to change this. Yeah, she's she's really the person who um, popularized the concept of transsexuality. Um, and I use the word transsexual to mean, you know, a medicalized, you know, hormones and surgery transition from man to woman or vice versa. Some people think that's a pejorative term now, you know, that it came out of the medical establishment and it's always pejorative and never self-applied. But, you know, I will just say, I know a lot of trans people who still use that word about themselves and often it gets used to make a distinction between people who are interested in some kind of medicalized transition versus people who are not. Um, because it pertains sex pertaining to like bio, like genital yeah, shape or something like Yeah, or it's just, like you know, that. it's just a, yeah, a, yeah. I mean, some, some people just sort of continue to use it as a way of marking a certain kind of distinction within the mm-hmm. broader, you know, umbrella of, of transgender. And, you know, I, I use the word about myself. Um, so, you know, it's like, I mean, I, I personally don't find it pejorative. Um, but, you know, sometimes people can say things about themselves that, you know, other people should maybe refrain from. So um, from from using. Right. Well, I would also say, like, sometimes it's like nobody's business what someone's right. morphology or what their actually like genital right. shape is. Right. And it, right. it seems like some people get really interested in that and want to know. Like, well, have you what? had the operation? It's like, I don't know. Right. Why don't you tell me about your junk first? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's right. Like, can I see that? It's like, tell me. It's like, how have you felt about your genitals since you were a child? Yeah. You know? Right. I really want to know. It's like. Can you hear yourself right now? Right, right. So, um, but Christine Jorgensen is the person who called public attention to the possibilities of using hormones and surgery to like change your your morphology, like your body shape, and to link that to this idea of you know a, a social transition of genders. Jorgensen was somebody who was born in uh, like 1926, I believe, to Danish American parents in the Bronx and always felt effeminate somehow. I think they had questions about whether they were gay or trans or what have you. And remember that they were a young person in the 30s and 40s. And And I think it was when they would say, like, you're probably gay. Like, if you're associating too much with women because you like boys, that means you're gay. Like, this is some of the thinking that they would go through. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, Jorgensen... Or self-educated herself on what was possible, and she sought out surgical and hormonal treatment in Europe because it wasn't really available in the U.S. in the early 1950s. And then when she transitioned, and she spent like a you know year and a half, two years living in um, in Copenhagen uh, and going through her social transition there, when she had surgery. It was leaked to the press and became this global media story. And if you know any of your listeners remember all of the hoopla, you know, a few years ago around Caitlyn Jenner coming mm-hmm. out. I mean, just completely mediatized cover of Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. You know, ABC News. You know, 2020 with Diane Sawyer doing a special, uh, you know, episode on this. You know, and, and you know, Kate, Caitlyn Jenner was just like all over the place for a hot minute mm-hmm. there, and. That was Christine Jorgensen in the 50s. Uh, Her news of her so-called sex change made headlines around the world. I mean, the first story was in the, I think it was the New York Post, but the headline says, XGI becomes blonde beauty, and that 
It just right. went, it went viral, you know. She looks like a classic beauty of that era. Yeah, I mean, she looks, you know, when and... she's when she's in her twenties. I mean, she looks like a young Marilyn Monroe. I mean, she mm-hmm. definitely yeah, has the sort of like charisma and vivacity. Do trans people some look at that and kind of is that a problem to say, wow, do we really have to code that much into these gender roles? Yeah, you know, I I I think. Trans people code into their gender roles just like everybody else. I mean, like me personally, it's like, yeah, I feel like I'm like pretty androgynous femme of center, but it's just like I am not mm-hmm. a girly girl by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. But it's just like some some people are, right? You know, it's just like just right. like some cis women are more androgynous. Okay, and it's cool. like yeah. that was that was who Jorgensen was. I mean, she could rock that little, you know, blonde starlet look. And she did, you know, and and um, was part of it that she needed to though. Like you bring up the fact that she felt pressure to perform goodness, for example. Like she felt representative. She actually felt like okay, I need to do good for other people. Like I can be a representative. Yeah, I mean, she definitely had that sense of like wanting to enact what I would call like a trans respectability. You know that okay, she definitely yeah. played against the hi, I am a sleazy drag entertainer doing burlesque, and I'm I'm a, you know I'm a street walking drag queen. You know, it's just like she, you know, right. and I would just say like no no shade to people who do that work. You know, just like sisters uh but jorgensen was trying to perform a kind of like middle class white you know, gender normative so-called respectability and trying to distance herself from any kind of subcultural expression of gender variance for sure but that she um i don't think she anticipated the level of fame that she would achieve when mm-hmm. her story was leaked to the press she was actually trained as a photographer she wanted to be a documentary filmmaker she had like worked in hollywood as a set photographer she was working at rko studios in the newsreels division as a film cutter you know it was like the last <laughs> job she had before she went um went off to to copenhagen you know, and, and she said she was not expecting to become a celebrity uh, at all. But mm-hmm. once the story went viral, uh, she really was not able to do anything else. You know, it was kind of like, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's like um, I'm outed as trans. Uh, I'm exoticized. I'm sexualized. Um, you know, it's like I'm not finding any other work. It's like guess I better develop a nightclub routine and, you know, get out there and hoof it and support my aging parents and keep a roof over my head and do all And So, so she did. And she, I would say she rose to the occasion, you know, that she became a successful performer and entertainer in the fifth, in the fifties, you know, yeah, from like 53, 54 up through about, you know, 63, 64 for about a decade. She, was making like five thousand dollars a week out on the nightclub circuit and that's that's a nice chunk of change even now it was a lot of money back in the 50s and early 60s Uh, but it was through jorgensen that that the like i said the concept you know it's like it's like here's what science can do for you and there was there was an awful lot of um you know, I, I sort of would call it the the technological sublime. You know, of like there was all of this post World War II like 
enthusiasm about science. It was like, we can split the atom and we can put rockets Going on outer space moon. and yeah. run the way to the moon. It's like, and look, we can turn a man into right. a woman or a woman into a man. And Marshmallows were invented, like a food revolution of like all this yeah. sort of- <laughs> Radar, plastics, you know, yes. um, um, all of this. So, so Jorgensen- Kind of was you know I think of her like an avatar like she was the avatar of this like post twentieth century mm. moment of technological enthusiasm and the idea that that humanity itself could be transformed through scientific innovation, um, and so you know Jorgensen was the poster girl for all of that. It was eye-opening to see as well that sometimes surgery has been seen as a radical progressive move, like, wow, they're changing their bodies. But also it could be a conservative solution to homophobia where it's like, oh, actually, we're going to change bodies to align with this person so that they're not gay or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, you know, I think that was definitely part of the the fascination with, with Jorgensen because, like, she – before transition, it's like I think was widely perceived as a effeminate gay man. You know, mm -hmm. um, the way she got mediatized, you know, with that XGI becomes blonde beauty. It's like there's this idea of like Jorgensen was some like you know virile gung ho combat veteran in World War Two. <laughs> right. In in truth, yeah, I mean, she got drafted. You know, a, right. a, at the end of the war, and she was assigned mostly to. Fort Dix, New Jersey. Yeah, well, that's not a great story, though. Right. You've got to, that's not a front page headline. We've really got to play up the... 98-pound weakling uh, <laughs> military yeah. clerk, you know, uh, yeah. decides to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, right. So, yeah, the copy just, you know, was like, wasn't headline worthy. But this, <laughs> this sense of Jorgensen being the, you know, manly G.I. Joe type who gets turned into, you know, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, that's sort of the cultural fantasy at, mm -hmm. at work there. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with, as you were just saying, cu cultural fears of homophobia. It's like there, there right. was heightened attention in the post-World War II years to particularly male homosexuality. It had become much more visible during the war years for a variety of reasons we could go into if you want. Mm -hmm. But The book um, certainly does. People can check it out. Right. Um, and that it was like homosexuality what to do about this it's like science you know engineering it's like that was the time yeah yeah we can make um that boy who likes boys a girl you know it's like right. whew, problem solved so and it's important i mean this is why it's important as you know you laid out at the outset that sex gender and sexuality are three different things gender identity being kind of more cultural, sex being more biological, and sexuality being what people are attracted to or turned on by. And those are all different variables. And, and you know, over time, psychologists and just everyday people have come to terms with that uh, more and more. Uh, to skip ahead here a little bit, your book looks at social conditions. And uh, it's not just about individual people who transition or individual experiences. And I was really... I, I was not expecting to see some of the infighting or some of the struggles that went on within what we now call the LGBTQ plus community. That's just a thing we have today. But it wasn't always that way. And and there were some alliances, but there were also some divisions. And I'm thinking, for example, of Stonewall is a famous instance, this this protest that happened there uh, against police and, and trans people were a big part of that. But now it's associated in the popular imagination more with with gay people, with gay men in particular. Right. So maybe spend a minute just talking about kind of 
the activism side of things and how there were different different alliances yeah. well, that you took know, the, shape the, over time. The, the thing that I would I would say is that if we look back historically into the late 19th and early 20th century, the the most common way of thinking about sexuality and gender variance, I think among both variant people themselves as well as um, you know medical and legal forensic authorities, uh, was to think about not like homosexuality and heterosexuality that that kind of wasn't the framework yet, but to think about inverts and normal people, you know, and the idea of the psychosexual invert who is attracted to a so-called normal person of their same biological sex. It's like that was that was the the predominant way of thinking about things so that it kind of conflates the idea of sexual orientation and gender identity, you know, the way that we've come to make that distinction post-World War II. Uh, but the idea of... Um, a female person who is in love with a female person, well, one of them's gonna be a normal woman and the other one's gonna be an invert, and that they might just be a little bit inverted in terms of like, mm, liking a woman is something that men do, and so like that's a little bit of a gender inversion there, but maybe they're even more inverted, you know, and that they like wear pants instead of dresses or like to cut their hair short, uh, you know, it's like, but then there could be somebody who's like really super inverted, you know, like, actually thinks they're a member of the other sex or like trying to pass as a member of that gender or wanting to change their bodies, you know, so that, that the invert normal model puts trans and gay kind of on the same side of the question. It's like, they're kind of like, they're, they're conflated. They're both expressions of the same thing. Uh, and it's really not until you develop this new sex gender identity model post-World War II that I think that gay and trans people really start thinking of themselves as like fundamentally different kinds of people. And that once you have that, you know, I, I think that what we would now call like, you know, cisgender gay and lesbian identities, you know, they were really unaware of what we would now call their cisgender privilege and would try to distance themselves from, mm -hmm. you know, those those more sick, more pathological, freakier trans people who are not like us and that's not what we were we are doing. And that I would argue that the progress that was made on gay and lesbian rights in the post-World War II period, particularly in the 60s and 70s, was predicated on ways that gay and lesbian people shared with straight people their cisgender privilege and they kind of threw trans people under the bus. Mm -hmm. And you can really see it in the social history of LGBT social activism in the 60s and 70s. You know, you, you mentioned Stonewall. It's like, oh, it was gay men rioting. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, gay men did riot, but the instigation of that event mm -hmm. was the harassment of gender variant people of color on the streets outside the bar, right. you know? And, and so, I mean, Stonewall is so mythologized as a, hmm. as a point of origin It's a very complex record of what, what happened there. But I, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the spark for 
resisting police violence, resisting any kind of clampdown on trans and gay spaces, it usually revolves around the way that like trans feminine people engaged in sex work on the street are mm-hmm. targeted by the police. It's like that is the most common in- instigation of um, anti-queer violence. It's like it is the it is the point of origin of all of the resistance movements that have taken place over the last half century and more. Another division that your book draws out is between feminism and, and transgender issues. And I was struck with how much the 70s parallels what's happening today, where we have feminism really, really flourishing, but then you have feminists who say, well, not not trans people, not especially trans women. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that same thing today with people like J.K. Rowling and this turf identity, trans exclusionary radical feminists who say, nope, uh, the only women that count are are defined in this particular way. And it really parallels more with what was happening in the 70s than I would have realized. Yeah. Well, I would say it not just parallels it, but that the ideas that have really... Um, taken off since about 2014, 2015. It's like, it's not that they parallel the 70s, it's like it comes out of the 70s. It's like it's some of the exact same same people, you know, and that there's a, right. a fascinating history there to, um, to look at how certain kinds of transphobic discourses emerge in certain very specific pockets of, of lesbian feminist separatism in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, and how those ideas migrate out of those very, you know, very marginalized cultural spaces, kind of more into the mainstream, how it moves into um, international human rights discourses, particularly around sex trafficking, and then the way that it starts to get folded in with right-wing ethno-nationalist populist movements, uh, other kinds of reactionary populist politics with fundamentalist Catholicism and evangelicalism. I mean, I would call that like transphobia studies, you know, like there, there is a, there is a tremendous story to be told there about how that all went down. But these ideas that are experiencing such a resurgence right now emerged 50 years ago. It's like, it's not, it's like, it's, it's not a parallel. It's a continuation. As you're writing this part of the book, we're kind of getting later into the book, into the nineties and stuff. You, you talk about how the American Psychiatric Association changed over time, thanks to lobbying and, and input from, from specialists, but also trans people and others. Uh, gender identity disorder was finally removed from the uh, DSM in 2013, which actually seems really, really, really recent. kind of recent yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah. But as you're writing the history of this, did it line up with your own memories of what was going on back then? Or was it like, oh, wow, there, there was a lot more here than what I realized at the time? I, I'll answer that. But I also just want to circle back to the feminism question for sure. a moment and just say like, I consider myself a feminist. Um, you know, I teach in gender studies programs, or at least I did until I retired. I feel like feminism is something that is in alignment with anti-racist practices and like yeah. support of you know, indigenous sovereignty movements, and that it's in it's it's in alignment with you know struggles for economic justice as well as like bodily autonomy it's just like for me it is a wholly positive word but i also recognize that there are many kinds of feminisms you know that it's not monolithic there are some feminisms that i think are actually quite pernicious and i don't mind calling them out 
but I also just really want to highlight. I, I, I don't want. I don't want to conflate the idea of transphobia with feminism because most mm-hmm. feminists, in my experience, are not transphobic. Yeah, even back then, there was that that transgender woman who was the folk singer that was yeah, at the Beth Elliott. event. Yeah. yeah, and like they had the vote to see should we kick her out, and then most people said no, but then the people in charge were like, no, nope, we're still going to do it. Like, right. So you even right. showed even back then there was like most of the feminists at that time were supportive, but yeah. the people that had the levers of power were like, nope, you're out of here. There was just a really mobilized base, you know, to use our current sure. terms. That even though most feminists were trans inclusive it's like i would say only some of them are like yes we must do this others were kind of like yeah i haven't really okay. thought about this a whole lot sure. but you know yeah, yeah no big okay. deal to me yeah. and then there was this minority that was just like no mm-hmm. these people are like evil nazi constructed fembots who are trying to like yeah. destroy our movement from within and they're actually the patriarchy they're coming it's stolen right. valor too That's this true. idea of like hey you can't be a woman because We've paid our dues. You haven't. Right. Exactly. And so that was always the minority, but they were a very persistent minority. Do you get the sense that's how it is today still then within feminism in general? Yeah, I do. Okay. There's uh, there's definitely a fire, but there's a lot more smoke than fire. That's what hmm. I would say. But your other question about... Your Remind experience me. in the 90s, oh, yeah. Oh. Basically, like, if you're writing this history and you're like, oh, wow, <laughs> I did not right. know that was going on. All right. Well... So I would say if it's something that happened in the 80s and after, uh, which is a long time now, it's things that I was aware of at the time because, you know, by that time I was an adult, you know, in the 80s I was really wrestling with like to transition, how to transition, blah, blah, blah. But I was, you know, definitely kind of part of conversations with people, you know, outside my head and, um, you know, was part of communities, you know, part of social networks, you know, certainly paying attention to what was going on in the news. But then by the nineties, it's like when I transitioned, it's like, you know, I was, you know, living at 24, seven, and, um, like I kind of joke about it. Um, half funny kind of way of saying like there's only one job that the world lets most trans women have and that is to figure out how to get other people to pay them for being a trans woman you know and you can figure out lots of ways to get paid for being a trans woman and i've you know i've I've gotten paid in lots of ways you know for, for being a trans woman but it's like, I thought, well, like, this is it. It's just like I get reduced to this one thing. It's like I'm not a person who comes from this part of the country. I'm not a person who has this, like, you know, social or religious background. It's like I'm not a person who has a family. I'm not a person who has interests or expertise or whatever. I'm a transsexual woman. It's like that's, you know, it's like that is that is the door that I have to go through in every interaction with the world. So, mm. you know, like. It's like dance with who brung you to the ball, you know, it's just like, it's like, that's the horse I need to ride in on. And so how many different things can I make trans do? I want people to know, as, as we're talking about this too, we've, we focused a lot on, on being on trans women issues and things. The book itself is much broader, talks a lot more about race, uh, about uh, trans men. Um, it's very intersectional. So people that are listening to this interview, if they haven't got that impression yet, or wondering what's up with that, that, you know, that's kind of my own thing as an interviewer could have done better at that. 
that, but I do want people to know the book itself definitely is more expansive on that. And the book itself has also been updated. It was originally published in 2008, uh, needed big updates. Uh, after 10 years, you've released a second edition. And I just wanted to conclude really quick uh, with a word about kind of the state of affairs right now. How are you feeling right now about the lay of the land? You've mentioned a few things. We're seeing legislatures doing things, et cetera. So just maybe a word of advice for people that are concerned about these issues today. Yeah. Sure. Happy to do that. All right. Well, I'll just say I just tried to have a very broad spectrum uh, attention to trans issues from the 90s forward. So I, I feel like things that I write about in the book from the 90s, the aughts, the teens are things that I've been directly involved in as an activist, artist, filmmaker, scholar, you know, mm-hmm. wh- what have you. I definitely felt like the first edition of the book, it was basically reflecting on what had happened in the 20th century, that uh, it positioned the 90s as a sort of a watershed moment where you had these new ideas about transness coming out. Um, it needed to be updated to to um, account for what happened after 9-11, because um, mm-hmm. that was kind of about the time the first book came out and the you know sort of end of the first decade of the 21st century. You know, because there was a tremendous amount of progress for at least, you know, fairly privileged trans people in the Obama years, you know, from 2008 to 2016. And, you know, the second edition of the book came out right when Trump was elected. And that was, I mean, if you want to talk about a watershed, like that was a watershed event. You know, like I think that was the thing that slaps people upside the head with the idea that history is not a progress narrative, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that... I think I'm going to have to do a third edition of the book now, you know, to um, to account for what's happened, um, yeah, since 20, 2016. Um, because it's, and it's just not pretty and it's totally important. And who would have thought that trans issues would be one of the frontline issues in the contemporary culture wars. But here we are. And with all of that, too, I'll just conclude by saying your book isn't just about the struggles, the fights, the legal implications, et cetera, but you also spend time on the joy and the art and the the cultural efflorescence. So there's there's joy in this book as well. And and it's it's a really it's a it's a wonderful story. It it gets a lot there's a lot on the table here for people to chew on. So I appreciate you writing it. We need to take a quick break, but that's Susan Stryker, author of Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution, and we'll be right back with a best book recommendation. Hi, I'm Caroline Klein. I've spent the last seven years listening to Latter-day Saint women from around the world discuss their hopes and fears, their sorrows and joys, and the ways their faith informs their everyday lives. I want to share their stories and voices with you on my new podcast, This Global Latter-day Life. Join me to hear about the perspectives and life stories of Latter-day Saints from places like Botswana, Mexico, the Caribbean, and other countries around the world. Each of the women you'll meet contributed their stories to Claremont Graduate University's Mormon Oral History Collections. We'll also be joined by scholars and other community members who offer insights and explore questions that arise along the way. Half storytelling, half conversation, this global Latter-day life amplifies the voices of global church members and invites all of us to take more seriously the perspectives of Latter-day Saints navigating diverse cultures. Subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, it's Blair Hodges, taking a moment here to stir up the coals, get the flames going a little bit longer for the rest of the interview. As it winds down, I wanted to read something from a listener that came in through the contact form on the website. This is from Darren H. And Darren says uh, they, they wish they sent this message a long time ago. They're a longtime listener and enjoyed the first season of Fireside. 
And this is funny, uh, Darren's email came in like just a couple days before season two debuted. And, and Darren says, I understand life and day jobs and families go through different seasons of busyness, but I hope that I'll have the opportunity to listen to more of your good work, whether that be season two of Fireside or another project. Well, I mean, Darren was in luck. Like, just a few days later, season two came out. So uh, that was a timely message. Thanks for sending it, Darren. I appreciated hearing from you and hearing about your feelings about the show. You can contact me. Just go on the website. There's a contact form. You can also email me, Blair, at firesidepod.org. Interact on social media. I don't get a lot of traffic there, um, so it would be great to hear from, from people. Also, rating and reviewing is a big deal. So if you use Apple Podcasts, just go search Fireside, go to the show page, and you'll be able to rate and review it there and leave some thoughts. I really appreciate every single review that comes in. All right, let's get back to the show. We're back with Susan Stryker, author of the book Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. All right, Susan, it's your turn now. It's best books time. What did you bring to recommend to us? I brought one of my favorite novels of recent years, and since we're talking about trans stuff, it's a book with a trans theme in it, and that book is Confessions of the Fox by Jordy Rosenberg. It's a novel that um, revolves around I'm not going to be able to do it justice, but it revolves around a trans guy who's an English professor at a small college in New England who thinks he has discovered a lost 18th century manuscript um, about this guy named Jack Shepard, who was a historical figure, uh, who was the historical basis for the Mac the Knife character in Three Penny Opera, and that apparently Jack Shepard was a transmasculine person. You know, that's that's the made-up part. So Confessions of the Fox purports to be this rediscovered manuscript that is being annotated by this scholar, a trans huh. guy, and the footnotes are hilarious. It's just like the conversation that goes on between the narrator and the character. It's like Jack Shepard has got his, you know, girlfriend, Bess, and the the professor who's annotating is like oh my god that's just so so like my my relationship with my girlfriend let me tell you about this thing <laughs> and so you start to see the two stories between them the scholar and the historical character paralleling each other and i will just say it is one of the most inventive funny sexy smart books I have read in recent years. I have taught seminars on this book. Students love it. It has so many little rabbit holes to go down. If you like transgender history, this is a book that sort of m m makes the most of like telling weird stories about trans history that you never thought of and yet weaving it into a speculative historical novel. It's you know, five, five stars, you know, highest possible recommendation. I haven't heard of this. It looks, I mean, it's been critically hailed. It's one book of the year by New Yorker, Kirkus Reviews. This, yeah, this looks like a really fun book. Yeah, it's super fun. Well, cool. Hey, I wish we had way more time because we barely, barely scratched the surface today, Susan. And this has been a really, uh, really enjoyable conversation with you. I am really appreciate you meeting here at Fireside and just talking about yourself and your research. Sure. Happy to do it. And, you know, have me back anytime. Yeah, let's do it. All right. We need part two and part three. So All right. <laughs> well, just hit me All right. Up. Thanks a lot. All right. Fireside with Blair Hodges is sponsored by the Howard W. Hunter Foundation, supporters of the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University in California. It's also supported by the Dialogue Foundation, a proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. 
All right, another episode's in the books. The fire has dimmed, but the discussion continues. Join me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at PodFireside, and I'm on Facebook as well. You can leave a comment at firesidepod.org. You can also email me questions, comments, or suggestions directly. The address is Blair at firesidepod.org. And please don't forget to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Fireside is recorded, produced, and edited by me, Blair Hodges, in Salt Lake City. Special thanks to my production assistants, Kate Davis and Camille Messick. And also thanks to Christy Franson, Matthew Bowman, and Kristen Ulrich Hodges. The opening theme song is called Great Light by Deep Sea Diver. You can check out that excellent band at thisisdeepseadiver.com. Fireside with Blair Hodges is the place to fan the flames of your curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. See you next time.